Today's episode of the Sidious Mag Podcast on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network is brought to you by Stride. Despite everything that's been going on in the world, running isn't canceled. You can always get it done. You can get out the door for a couple miles. You might have a treadmill handy. Races may be canceled across the country, but just don't stop putting in the work. Keep going. Uh, keep working on proving yourself and control what you can control. One thing that can sometimes slip out of your control is pacing. Whether you're doing it outdoors or on a treadmill, Stride is here to help. Stride is a super lightweight pod that sits on your shoe and shoots a number onto your watch. Uh, what's that number? It's called power. It takes into account grade, wind, heat, humidity, and altitude to adjust it to the pace that you need to hit. You just aim for consistent power from start to finish based off that number. More than two dozen runners at the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials used it. I've been using it. My friend Matt Meyer is using it. Now it's your turn. Go to stride.com slash Sidious to learn more about this game changer that you can implement into your training. That's stride.com slash Sidious, S-T-R-Y-D dot com slash Sidious. I've been enjoying it, and I've incorporated it into my own running, and it's made a difference. So check them out today. The sports world has stopped, and there's a lot of uncertainty right now regarding the future of some sporting events, but I decided that this show will go on, and many of you are in a similar boat as me, working from home and in need of some entertainment, so I decided to share this conversation with Alfine Tulimuk because it's just what we might need. Before we started recording, we did talk about the coronavirus, and it didn't make it into the final episode, but... You know, she's keeping her hopes up and, uh, you know, just optimistic that things get sorted out. And hopefully, you know, there will be another chance to to race and show off this fitness. So the Olympics are one of the big events that is hanging in the balance right now. But we can only wait and see right now. And goes going back to that previous point, we can only control what we can control. So on this show, we're going to talk about her American dream and how it kind of led to this crowning moment at the trials that self-belief that she developed into being able to visualize and seeing herself win this race, and most importantly, becoming a voice for others. So without further ado, here is Alfine Tulliamuk. All right, Alfine. You've had a couple days now to process everything. Actually, a little bit more over over a week now. Um, I spoke with Jake Riley, and he said it took him up until the following Wednesday to write down on paper and say that I am an Olympian. For you, when did that moment come? If I'm being 100% honest, I don't even think that I'm there yet. <laughs> and it's been like more if than I'm a week. Being, yes, yes, but... The reason I say that is um, it's been like more than a week yet, but I, I, I came home and I had a few things that I did with the media and I've been doing things, but I also uh, got myself a new uh, problem, which is crocheting and I don't think I've had a chance to think. And uh, last night I went to bed at 1 a.m. and I remember thinking that I probably should reward the race for the third time and this time around, maybe not crochet, just watch it because maybe it will sink in. I think I, like, these moments where I'm like, oh, yeah, I met the Olympic team. And then at the moment, so I'm like, did that really happen? Like, it almost still comes as a shock to myself when I think that I, I'm going to the Olympics as long as the coronavirus doesn't affect everything. But I, I don't honestly 100% think that it has sunk in yet because I don't think I've given myself a chance to think through. Yeah, and, I mean, you, you mentioned the crocheting. How many orders ended up being uh, made, I guess, on the day of the trials? So, um, I I came home and I had 179 orders. Oh my god. <laughs> the problem with that is that I'm talking about orders, like some people ordered four or five beanies and that's considered one order. And uh, today, uh, yesterday, I sat down all day because uh, I had to buy a printer and, and uh, get my own locals from home. I did that the whole day yesterday, and at the end of the day, it says 140 orders left that I don't even have inventory for, and I'm I'm about to lose my mind. <laughs> take me through uh, the process. How long does it take to make one beanie? It takes anywhere between an hour and an hour and a half on a on a day where I don't have anything else going on. 
But really, this last, uh, you know, like since I got back from the trials, there's just so much going on in my life that I don't, sometimes I don't have that time to like sit down for an hour, an hour and a half and just concentrate on making a beauty. And then, of course, that coupled up with the fact that I'm stressing out about the fact that, you know, I should have delivered these orders according, like, like my Etsy shop said, uh, if you order an order, it takes me two or three days to process. And that was always true whenever I didn't have a lot of orders. But now I have so many orders that I already overdue and I'm stressing out about that. So, yeah. When it comes to just like the return to normalcy, what does that day look like for you? I don't think there will be that much difference uh, because like besides the crocheting and the social media that I have and also, you know, the fact that I actually am an, I'm going to be an Olympian, um, I don't think anything is going to change much. Maybe if I go to places, people will be saying, hi, you know, we saw you racing. There will be more people recognizing me. But on a personal level, I don't think that's going to change. I, yeah, I don't think anything's going to change. What was the reception like when you got back to, to Flagstaff? It was great. Um, uh, the first thing that I did when I got back to Flagstaff was I had a podcast with my teammates, Rory and ba- Matt Baxter and Nick. Um, they have a great podcast, and uh, that was my first uh, engagement that I did with them. Um, and then I went to visit uh, a, a, an elementary school that uh, my coach daughter goes to. And then that evening I met with uh, uh, like a, a group in Flagstaff that are, it's called a run Flagstaff. It's basically like a training, a running group in Flagstaff that meets, uh, I don't remember how, I don't know how many days a week to train together. And, uh, you know, I was able to meet with them and most of them had like, had a watch party or what in the watch party that uh, was held in Flagstaff. So that was really cool. I was able to meet with people, talk to them and, you know, like take pictures with them. It was really cool. And some of them already had my business. So they were very lucky that they, they ordered them before it, the creation had started. But that was, um, that was what I did in Flagstaff. And then, uh, um, yeah, that was basically the reception. And I didn't stay in Flagstaff long enough to do other things because I went back to New Mexico. Usually when I'm not uh, training, I go back to New Mexico where my partner lives. Uh, and so I'm here now. When you got to speak to a class of, of students, what is it that, that you talk to them about? Because I'm sure like for them to be able to see an Olympian is something that doesn't happen every day. Uh, what kind of inspiration, I guess, did you lend to them? These are third graders, so I didn't tell them a whole lot. I just, uh, and I, some of them, I mean, Flagstaff is really a tightly knit community, and almost everybody knows their runners, or like it's part of a running, it's a running community. And so some of those kids had actually watched our ways, and uh, the fact that uh, Addison, our coach daughter, uh, goes to that class too, you know, some of her peers knew that, and uh, like, during old like on the days leading up to the trials their class were asked to write letters to our group i believe i think it was just our group i'm not 100 percent sure on that part but uh so i had a letter from uh, a couple of them uh you know like leading up to the trials and i was able to meet this girl uh that wrote me a letter and she was super excited that I was, like, she wrote her letter, I read it, and then she watched me on TV, and she got to meet me, so it was incredible, and actually, at the end of that uh, uh, meeting, she came up to me, and she just wanted to hang out with me, and she told me, she said, I'm going to take your name, and you can take mine, and uh, there were a couple other kids that told me that their goal was to be in the Olympics, so what I just told them was that, you know, they can dream as big as they want, and, you know, they can fulfill those dreams as long as they work hard for it, and uh, one of the other letters that I, uh, that one of the kids wrote me was, you are very brave to uh, be running the Olympic trials. I would be very scared and I wouldn't do it. So I just told them, um, I said, you don't have to be scared. If you work hard for it, you, it, it can happen. And so I, I just encouraged them to like follow their dreams and it doesn't matter how lofty it is, just go ahead and dedicate time and work to it. Who were those idols when you were growing up? Because, I mean, from a recent conversation I had with Bernard Lagat, he was saying, you know, someone like Elliot uh, Kipchoge is only like, I think, 10 or so years older than him, but he was able to see him coming up in the sport. Patrick Sang is another person who he idolized. But for you growing up in Kenya, what sporting idols did you have? Um, so when I was very, very young, it was so different. Like, you know, it wasn't until I was in fourth grade that I actually learned a lot about running and 
the, the fact that you can do running as a profession. And so at that point, when I was in fourth grade, my running idol was Tekla Rupe. And this only happened. Uh, and Tekla Rupe, by the way, her, I think she was the, uh, the first African woman to win New York City Marathon. And uh, she was also, at some point, a world record holder for the marathon. Um, and uh, the only reason why she became my idol was in uh, 2000, I was in fourth grade, and we were traveling to what's the equivalent of a, of, um, a state meet. And uh, my uncle, uh, whom I was staying with, and he was basically our coach, uh, knew Tekla, and he she uh, like he brought her to um, like a track where she met the whole group that was going to what's equivalent to um, a state meet. And Tekla at the time was getting ready for the 2000 Olympics. Um, and so she came and she talked to all of us, and I had won the 10,000 meters um, in our region, uh, and so I was the champion going into uh, the state meet. And Tekla, you know, like, I guess she saw something in me, and she was very impressed by the fact that I was able to run and beat, um, you know, some of the older athletes that had trained, I had, like, a more formal training, and she gave me a pair of shoes, and, that, and I didn't even have any shoes that time, and uh, because she did that, she just became my idol, and I think, I remember the next year, um, when I went to what's equivalent of a step meet again, I don't remember how I got the magazine, but somebody gave me a magazine and Tekla was the, at the cover of that magazine. I believe it was the sheets come back from the Olympics. I didn't even know much about the Olympics then. And she instantly just became my idol and I've idolized her all these years. And actually, um, in 2016, um, after I got my citizenship and had my allegiance transferred, um, I read that Tekla Lorupe was going to be uh, with a, uh, with a refugee group in the Olympics. She was uh, leading the refugee group, and I all I wanted to do was to match that 2016 Olympics so that I could meet her at the Olympics and tell her and and, and you know thank her for the pair of shoes that she gave me in 2000 and you know tell her that she inspired me to. Uh, you know, like pursue running uh, this far, but I, of course, I didn't. I ended up not making the team. Lucky enough for me, when we went to a world cross country in Uganda in 2017, she was there, and so my mother and I and some of my family went to talk to her, and it was the coolest moment ever for me to be able to meet with my idol and express my gratitude to her. It makes me so happy to hear that, and sort of kind of like to the importance of it. I mean, you being. A, a you know small child looking up to a female role model now i guess you've kind of like turned the tables and you can be that female role model to so many different people uh has, has that hit you yet uh has that hit me yet I, I i don't think so it's kind of the same thing like i was saying that i don't think i've, I've given myself a chance uh to let everything sink in because i've been busy with other things but I mean, I do, I guess I do uh, in some way acknowledge now that, you know, people are looking up to me because of the messages that I've seen. And so it's like what I say right now has a little bit of, um, it has more weight than in the past. And so like if I'm telling someone, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've always been a down-to-earth person. At least I hope that's how it comes out. Like I just say things like it is. I'm a very open book. I tell people what I think. I could be very opinionated sometimes. I hope I don't offend anyone by saying that, by saying things, um, you know, very like uh, matter-of-factly. Uh, but like I recognize that I am a role model to a lot of people. And, you know, this is really awesome because, I've always wanted to inspire people through running, and now that I ran the Olympic trials and met the team, it really has given me a platform. You know, like uh, I have more people now that want to hear my story, and it makes me very happy because then that means that I can use this to continue to inspire more people. This might be a little bit tricky, but I remember before the trials, there was the New York Times story that you know kind of really broke down what the field looked like and. The big question that came up afterwards was just the the lack of diversity that was in there in terms of just like the African-American number was super, super low. And it's a little different because you were born in Kenya. You became an American citizen uh, later on. But how do you think that number can go up with you kind of serving somewhat of a role model to that demographic? I mean... Like you say, it's a little bit, um, uh, I, I don't think I understand, uh, you know, what it is like to be an African-American who was born here, because again, I came here as an adult, but I do believe, though, that uh, we could uh, 
we could have more conversations, you know, in the African American communities, and uh, we've seen that, you know, in other sports, like you know, uh, uh, the NFL, and uh, you know, we've seen a lot of African American participating, and even in the sprinters and track, we've seen a lot of that happen, but. I just feel like we could create more opportunities for the African American community to, uh, to to get exposure and and to get the opportunities to race more and even in colleges because really like it, it is true like when I see even like on the college level or on the professional level or the track I can't think of a lot of people honestly like I, I know Mariel Hall who's uh, a great athlete. Uh, you know, with the Jerry group, but I, I can't think of a lot of, you know, people, and then we have Joe Gray, uh, you know, on the trails, but we, we don't have a lot of that, and honestly, I don't know what it is that is, um, you know, that, that is preventing more African Americans from, uh, you know, racing and committing to, uh, you know, being at the professional level or at the long-distance level, I couldn't answer you that, but I definitely think that we could use these opportunities to, like, um, you know, uh, like, like inspire them and, 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 you know, encourage them more. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not, a. it's not I'm easy. Not, um, yeah. It's not that easy, but again, I'm not, a. I, I don't know much about it. For sure. So kind of the first time that you put on a national team uniform, I believe was what world cross country 2005 for Kenya. Uh, yeah. And then how does that, I guess, compare to the first time you were able to put on a USA uh, uniform? Because it's it's two different countries, but the feeling of the first time must have been, I guess, just, just a very proud moment in two different ways. It was, but like when I think about it, really the first time, um, I, I don't think I was a grateful person when I was younger. And this, like, when I was in Kenya, uh, and, 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 and represented Kenya in 2005, I don't think I appreciated being part of a team or the pride of representing your country that much. And even when I was in college and having a team, I didn't appreciate it as much. I think it was only after I graduated from college and didn't have that team, uh, you know, that to rely on, that was when I really, like, realized how... Uh, how much, how good I had had it when I was in college with a team and even being part of the Kenyan team. And so it wasn't until after college that I really started appreciating it. And so in 2017, when I went, we went to uh, Uganda for the World Cross Country, that was really cool. I really took that in. Like, I, 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 you know, like I was part of a team and it felt really, really good. And yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed that. So that was the first time that I really uh, enjoyed it. I remember just being in Uganda and uh, like I think after our race and uh, I, I didn't think that we would be able to get fifth place. No, was it fifth or third? Uh, I, I can't remember. Um, yeah. I think it was fifth. But I remember how happy and proud of my teammates I was because I was fifth, 15th place. And so I didn't really think because I was the first one in our team uh, on Team USA. And I was like, if I was 15, I don't think we're going to make uh, the top five and when I guess we did finish really really close to each other and so when I saw that we were fifth place I was very proud of myself I was very proud of my team and that has just continued and then um from there you know like in 2018 I joined the NSC group and I have just like I feel like my my gratitude and my team mentality has just gotten better and so with this one I mean it's a it's a whole new level of gratitude and excitement for sure it seems like there's so much more of an appreciation because of the, your life and experience in Kenya when you, you know, really get to understand like the opportunity that is in the United States. How different do you think your life would have been had you stayed in Kenya, you know, and not attended school in the United States? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think so. When I graduated from high school, I had good grades and, um, a lot of people who, and I could have gone to college, except I probably would have had to pay for it, uh, or went to a community college. And so you don't find a lot of people who are going to college and pursuing sports at the same time. And with how bad my running was at the time, honestly, I think that running would have just uh, slipped away. I think that if I had gone to Kenya, uh, I mean, if I had stayed in Kenya and went to college there, I think running would have just slipped away. I wouldn't have been able to like run anymore. Either that or I would have just said, okay, I'm going to dedicate time to training and forget about going to college. But 
you know, looking at how long it took me to get back to shape and to get back to racing. Well, it literally took me four to six years to get, you know, like even better to get to where I was able to, you know, like race really well. Because when I got here, I could barely break 17 minutes for 5K. And by the time I graduated from college, I, I was running like a 15, 18 in the 5K on, on the outdoor track. But even that doesn't really get you that far. You know, it doesn't get you an Olympic uh, spot. And so, like, I think if I had stayed in Kenya, running would have probably suffered. And so being here and, and having gotten a college education and, you know, now being in the biggest stage of my, uh, my career, it's just amazing. And it just goes a long way to show how an opportunity, being given an opportunity can just have rippling effects. And that is why, like, I am just so grateful for these opportunities. I will never take it for granted because this is a whole new level of, um, you know, like achievement that I wouldn't have I've never gotten otherwise if I had stayed back home. When did you first have like the American dream? Because it's different than the Olympic dream. The Olympic dream, I think you kind of said, maybe comes into the picture post collegiately once you join NAZ. But I guess like for the the American dream, in uh, similarly like in my conversation with Bernard. He said, you know, this came as a result of his sister getting recruited to colleges, but ultimately making the sacrifice to stay in 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 Kenya to help out with, with his family. So when he went to college, it was sort of like, I'm going to do this be, before the people who made these sacrifices for me. But for you, how, how, is, how is your American dream different? I think for me, it was more like, um, so once, so I got my green card back in 2000 and, uh, 13 um and even then it really like running was still not that important to me and then 2014 15 16 and then uh, in 2016 um you know like i realized that oh i could apply for my citizenship because you know i was due for that uh, according to the process and you know like at that point my running was taking on a really special meaning and that I had already graduated from college. I had gotten that appreciation of knowing what it feels like to be part of a team. And I think that was the, and then of course, like I had, I went home uh, in 2014 actually. And I saw for the first time how different life was because you could easily forget when you're here, you just get used to what you have. And then when I go back, it was like, it, it almost was a shock to me, even though this is the life that I was used to. But it just felt a lot harder going back and seeing how people are struggling. And I, I think when I came back in 2014 or in 2015, I just knew that I had an opportunity. And, and I just got a lot more appreciation. And so in 2016, when it was time for me to apply for my citizenship, like, I didn't even second guess it. I was just like, this is the right thing for me to do because I have a great life, a life that I wouldn't have gotten it any other way if I hadn't come here. And what best way uh, to show this appreciation than to get your citizenship, walk your butt off, and, you know, like, get to represent your new country, you know, in, uh, you know, like, in international competitions. And so I think it was back uh, earlier in 2016. I mean, it's perfectly timed because, I mean, after that, things only got complicated with the election and the results and whatever happened after that. But does, does a part of your, does a part of you kind of feel for someone with a very similar situation? If we look at like Edward Cheserek, who is in Flagstaff a lot of the time, and I'm not sure how much you interact with him, but his situation is, is, is sounds similar, but it's so tricky because he's in limbo. I mean, so what, do you have any sort of like feelings or thoughts towards that? I mean, I do, um, and I, I guess it, it sucks that, um, you know, I know that when people see uh, somebody like myself, right, who is a, a, a Kenyan American, when I win a race like that, peep, chances are a lot of people are going to say, well, she is not an American-born citizen. And so people always have uh, different views on that, but I feel like, you can't be any more American than appreciating what your country is giving you and, 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 and you know, like playing by the rules, paying your taxes, doing everything right. And, and so for somebody like Edward, like, I feel bad, you know, like he doesn't get the opportunity, even though he's lived here, like, you know, for what, like he's been here since high school 
and I'm sure he will love to represent his new uh, country that has given him a lot because it's given him a life and opportunities that he wouldn't have gotten it otherwise. But I don't know, like, I, 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 yeah, there's a lot of politics around it, but I just think that if somebody has paid their dues, America is a, you know, is a, is a, is a country of immigrants. All of us at some point came from somewhere else. And if you're playing by the rules and you're not cutting any shortcuts, then I think that it would be nice to have the same opportunities as everyone else. Really, I, yeah, I'm probably saying things that I shouldn't say. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, yeah. think, I think it was very well said, Alfin. Um, and so kind of this, you, you, you arrived in the United States, you got your citizenship. Did that American dream also trickle out to, you know, you're part of a very big family, one of 32? I mean... Did, did, I know you have, I guess, uh, some siblings, I guess, you have a younger brother right now, I think, who's, like, competing in the States and, like, studying here. Um, yeah. How, how much has has it gotten out to the rest of your family, too, in terms of just their hopes of coming here? Oh, it's gotten so much better. I mean, my, my, my our youngest right now, we just graduated from high school this last year, and he did really well. He is so excited about starting training and, and, you know, seeking scholarship as a student athlete because, I mean, again, he wants this opportunity to go to America, this country that he can only imagine in his dreams when we tell him some of the stories. He can only imagine that in his mind. And if he ever gets the opportunity, I think he will enjoy that. He will love to do that. And even, like, for my family, so um, my mom has, like, eight children. I am the second of those eight children, and my older sister, because of how, um, you know, our communities were back then, my older sister got pregnant when she was in seventh grade. Wow. And then, like, you know, uh, and, and because, again, of the way the community was at the time, and school was not, school was very new, she wasn't able to continue with her education, and so she got married not too long after that, and... Um, she's, you know, she has a good life. I'm not going to say that uh, she's complaining, but... She was a very, very smart kid. She was actually the smartest in our family. Uh, she was really good at math, and she was also a very good one, and she just never had the opportunities. And so uh, me being the second born and having the opportunities that I've had and come here, the rest of my younger siblings are now very successful. Like, you know, I have my brother who's going to school here. I have one of my other brothers who are graduated from college a few years ago. He's a high school teacher. I have my sister who is an elementary school teacher. I have my other brother who is graduating from college this year. Like, And then we have our youngest who just did really well in high school. And then our other brother who is uh, still in high school, like the rest of my family were able to, um, you know, like to emulate what I did. And they just uh, worked really hard, you know, um, in school. And all of them are basically successful. And if I hadn't come here, a part of me wonders, like, would my family have been successful the way they are? And when I talk about helping my family, honestly, I mean, I, I, sometimes I wonder, like, do people think, oh, she's here and then she's just working and not contributing to the economy? And this is me just speaking my mind out loud, right? Like, would people think, oh, she's just here and not contributing to the economy? But really, the health in my family that I talk about is advices, you know, like telling my brothers, there's a future, there's a better future ahead of you if you work really hard and, and you, you know, like you focus on your school and you're somebody who is who has integrity and you do things transparently and you follow your heart, you can succeed. And just that advice and because of where I am and, and, and the life that I have, you know, like they, they definitely take me seriously and they have been able to succeed in their own lives because of that. I mean, I'm going to say track money isn't like a lot of money like any other sport, but for you, you know, through bonuses, prize money, and, and that kind of stuff, how much of it has gone back to, to, to your family and, and those in Kenya? Not actually a whole lot. Surprisingly, I mean, I um, my family sustains themselves very well. I mean, like my dad and mom are, are farmers. They don't have a whole lot, but they have a lot of land. They have a lot of... Um, animals and so really i haven't had to like support them that much just because you know they, they can sustain themselves and now we're at the point you know in our lives in our in my family that we each have something small to contribute now if say like my older sister for example um about a year or a year and a half ago she had a fundraiser because she wanted to purchase a bigger uh, land 
and we were all able to contribute to her. So that's kind of the, the kind of help that I can help with, uh, to support her with. And then one of my half brothers uh, was going to college in Kenya, and um, you know, like we, I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna help support him. Because again, you know, with a big family like that and with different moms, I just want to make sure that my family knows that it doesn't matter, you know, like if I'm from mother number one or number mother number two, we all are part of a family. So I was able to support my uh, that half-brother, you know, uh, pay for his college education. But really, in the grand scheme of things, I don't really honestly, like, I, I, like, I don't have to support them as much as it sounds. Right. It's mostly just their advice, yeah. And I mean, like like you said, again, truck athletes don't make that much money. I live here in America, life is expensive. Life is expensive in Flagstaff, it's expensive in Santa Fe. Most of that just goes to pay for my my rent, my mortgage, and, you know, insurances, and at the end of the day, you know, just, yeah. You're lucky you don't live in New York. It's so much more expensive here. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I'm, I'm complaining, but when I think about you guys who live in New York, I'm thinking I... I couldn't survive there. <laughs> um, I don't think track athletes can survive in New York. There's, there's not too many professionals here. Um, yeah. All right. So, look, we've made it this far. We haven't even talked about Atlanta yet. All right. So let's get into it. Sort of making that first connection sort of with NAZ to continue on sort of like your trajectory there. I mean, the team was formed, you know, by by Ben Rosario. And then, you know, Hoka came in and, and made a big investment in them. And a lot of the goal was to... Let's put someone on the Olympic team. Whether it was in 16 or 2020, they finally, finally made it happen. But when that mantra and that motto of of that goal comes into the picture for you and those conversations are happening, how much did it match up with your own sort of aspirations for yourself? A lot, really. Like I think part of the reason why I joined NNC Elite Group is because I, I really looked at the uh, marathon training. I think we are... Uh, you know, Ben has really mastered the marathon training, and I, I looked at the Kellen's performance and Stephanie's performance, and both Scott's performances, and even like uh, Aaron Brown, who was part of our team before, and Matiano. Like, you know, with that, like we were getting better every year. And so, like when I saw that, and knowing that the trials was coming a couple of years after or later, I, I wanted to be a part of that group because I knew that we could make magic happen. And yeah, it definitely played a big role in. Uh, you you know, like elevating my dreams and being a part of a team environment like that was pretty cool. Um, it's funny because like listening to you talk about just kind of the teamwork that uh, that you guys put in and seeing, you know, the trailer for the movie that Stephen Kirsch and, and Ryan Sterner are putting together, um, you know, there was this, this really tight bond between you, uh, Steph Bruce and Kellen Taylor and the buildup for this. Uh, what was the best part about all of you guys working together for the first time for the same race? I think the best part is just supporting each other, especially on those days where one of us didn't feel like, didn't feel good, you know, when one of us was just not, like they just didn't have that day or they felt like they weren't going to have that day. Having the three of us there to support that or to support each other was incredible. I mean, it's easy when things are going well or when workouts are going well, but it's it, when you need people the most, when you need your teammates the most, is when those things are not going well. And I think each of us had those moments, you know, went through those moments at different times, and it was so good to have each other to, like, get through that moment with, like, the moment that uh, has been talked a lot about is, uh, you know, when Kellen was, uh, when Kellen's foster kids were taken, uh, that morning we had a, a big workout, and to be able to, uh, you know, share that, like, share that with Kellen was powerful. Um, I mean, like, we we met the kids uh, over Christmas. We we had, like, you know, interacted with the kids, and Stephanie and Kellen are even closer friends than I am. And having that friendship that is not necessarily running related, or it is still running related, but it's just on a personal level. It's just amazing, and it's just, it's just, um, it just brings you together, together, you know, closer. Yeah, Stephen Kirsch is my, my spy in my little boots on the ground there, and he was telling me, in this build-up, you guys did some very impressive stuff. 15 by 1 mile, 5 by 2 mile, but one workout that you did that really stood out to him was when you closed hard in the last 10 miles of a 20-miler, and he says there was some wild splits. What was, what was part of, what, what happened in that workout? I just felt really, really good. You know, we uh, we had a two mile warm up and then ten miles at like about six 
30 was what we were given, but I think we ended up accelerating about 622, 624. And then after that, we had uh, 10 miles of marathon effort, which in flash of our marathon effort these days is 540s. And Ben Bruce passed us the first uh, seven or so of that workout, or maybe six and a half. And then it was just the three of us. Uh, and, and the last three miles were very hard, you know, they were like a lot of, like, it was a net climb. Um, and then, like, for me, I just felt so good that day. And I didn't even, like, I, I, I didn't even feel like I was stepping on the gas that much. But the splits were incredible um, for that part of the the course and how hard it was. It was just amazing. And I finished and I was feeling good. So yeah, I'm not letting you go. You got to tell us the splits. What were the splits on the last three? <laughs> okay. I have a problem when it comes to splits. I never split my watch every mile. And so from what I have been told, I went under 5.30 for those last three incredibly hilly miles. I know that when I was running on the flat, there was a time that I was running under five minutes. Wow. Uh, so I don't know the entire split, but I know that my whole uh, 10 miles, like I was at 5.40, I looked at my watch uh, with three miles to go. My effort was 5.40, and when I crossed the finish uh, uh, at 10 miles, my effort was 5.36. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. That's incredible. Um, another big thing that came up, like, sort of in this buildup was sort of the the, the self-belief that you guys developed about, you know, being able to visualize making this team and believing in, in yourselves. For you, when you visualized winning the trials or even, you know, finishing second or third, what did that look like to you uh, in all the, in, in all the you know, whether it was reflections or, or sort of like meditations that you did? What, what did that look like? I think for me, it is strange to say this now, but I think for me, like, even though I visualized winning the race, it almost felt impossible. I think I saw myself as, okay, somebody who could make the team, like, and I told Sarah Holtis, I said, I had my money on her because she's an incredibly talented athlete. And so in my visualization, I saw myself there with Sarah Holland. I was like, well, unless I break her soon enough, like, if I wait until the last 1K, she definitely will have the spot. And um, I just didn't know who else would be part of that team, but I did see myself there. In my visualization, there was a very slim chance of me making the team. Um, but I, 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 I mean, not making the team, but there was a slim chance of me winning. But there was that chance, you know, like I could win. Now, I did definitely see myself as somebody who could make the team. And I think for a lot of the time, I thought maybe I would end up third place. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely visualized making the team. And of course, there was also that other part where, like, what if they, there's a chance to, that the three of us, Kellen, Stephanie, and I, could make that team? So there were different scenarios. There was never one that is dominant over the others. Yeah, so, I mean, kind of, here, here's, a, here's a fun question I asked Jake Riley, too, is because, I, you know, in the lead-up to it, I didn't pick you to make the team, um, and so now, I, you know, I feel so foolish, but why was I mistaken? Because if I look at everyone's resumes before the race and see what they did recently, it was always that, you know, in a case like you, the NAZ women, you know, Kellen had a little bit more shine because, you know, she ran a little faster and had, you know, I think maybe a stronger last race, and I was wrong. But so, like, why? Where where did your confidence come from before the race of you making that team? If you had seen my workouts, if you had seen all the marathon effort workouts that we were doing, you would have picked me. <laughs> Next time. Yes. Yes. Next time. I can't even believe I gave you a chance to talk to me now that I know you didn't pick me. <laughs> Um, if you, I, I think that if you had asked Stephanie and Carolyn or even the rest of our team, they had pretty big, con they had confidence that I could make that team. Um, Carolyn had better credentials compared to Stephanie and I in terms of she took, ran a 224, she ran a 226 in New York, but what people, a lot of people don't understand about my New York is that I, I, I was out in June, on June 22nd was my last run. Uh, of my last real run until the end of August, basically August 26th is when I jogged for 12 minutes. And I ran New York City Marathon off of about eight weeks of training. My longest uh, long run was 20 mile long run at, uh, at an average of 629. Um, and I ran New York and I ran five minutes faster than uh, two years before that when I was in like my best shape of my life at the time. 
So I ran a five-minute PR in that course of New York of eight weeks of training. And I felt great. I mean, looking at, like, the way I finished New York, I was feeling powerful. I went, I had, like, an even split, basically, like, actually, almost an even split uh, for my half marathons. And if anybody had paid attention to that and not the fact that I was 12th place, I think a lot of people would have, uh, would have predicted that I would make that team or at least I would come closer to that. This Linda, for instance, uh, after New York, she texted me and she said, if you can plan that well off of eight weeks of training, I am worried. Or like, I think uh, when you have a good builder for three months, I think there will be trials uh, is your thing. Wow. You know, she was one of the only people that is outside of my circle that texted me and told me that because she, I think she had followed what I was doing. And so a lot of people were thinking, well, she was uh, 12th in New York and she was a third American, but people just didn't know the backstory. And so I think that for people who like closely follow what I was doing leading up to New York and uh, the training that I had, a lot more people would have bet on me. It was fine, though. It was good because, you know what, I went into it very, very inspired by the fact that not a lot of people believed that I could make it. Also, I didn't have the pressure of, uh, you know, like, uh, of people predicting that I could make the team. So that was, it was that great for me, really, in the end. Yeah, and it made for, like, one of the most entertaining marathons I've ever seen. Uh, so next next time, I, I've learned from my mistakes now. Uh, ah, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> next time, you can just do what you did, and then that will just inspire me even more. <laughs> uh, ben was someone who believed in you and never gave up. What was the final conversation like between you and him, maybe that morning of the race or in the lead-up to the race? Because I remember after the finish, I got a little video of you seeing him for the first time after the race and you'd said like that morning you woke up and you even tweeted about this in the Twitter thread. You woke up, you had a couple like aches and pains and didn't didn't know how you were going to do this thing. Yeah, I think that uh, the day before the race, uh, well, no, two days before the race on Thursday, Ben and I sat down and uh, we played out, you know, a few scenarios. Ben is somebody that I really, I really like Ben's uh, coaching strategy because I think he lets the athlete you know, like, be more a part of the training. Like, he's not just excuse me, giving you what he thinks will be best. Like, he gives you the opportunity to tell him what you think will happen. And so um, two days before the race, we sat down, and he listened to, you know, what I thought would be the scenario, and then he just chimed in a little bit, you know, saying, hey, if this happened, then you should do this. And so his advice was, if one person went out, you know, like, Right from the gun, let them go because you can you can go with them. What if you don't know what their plan is? If two people went, you really have to assess where you are, how you feel, and you know how far into the race you are. But if three people went, you don't have an option. You need to go with them because if you're gonna make that team, you have to put yourself in the top three. You can't wait until um, you know you can't wait and hope that people will fall back, that three people will fall apart. And so that was his advice, and he just told me that he believed in my training. And this actually like goes back to June when um, I got my stress fracture uh, results, um, like my MRI results, and I called Ben, and he came up to my place, and I asked him, I said, Ben, I want you to be honest with me. There's no sugar coating here. Do you think that if I recover from this stress fracture, do you think that I have a chance to make this thing? You know, because at the time I had just ran at 226.50. That was my PR, and, and I mean, the credentials of the women that we had at the trials were incredible. And he told me, he said, yes, I think you have a chance. I believe in you. And I think it was that belief that really, like, gave me confidence, you know, it, like, through my injury. And, uh, you know, of course, in the back of my mind, I, I also still, I asked him that day, I said, do you think I could still do New York? He said, ah, I don't know, probably not. But I told him, I said, listen, coach. I want I want to know that I can still do New York because that would be the only way that I am going to put a lot more energy into taking the recovery seriously and even coming back because February just felt like a long time for me to concentrate on. I needed a you know like a, um, an in between goal and I also knew that I needed another marathon to get under my belt to get confidence and so he believed me way before you know we were closer to the trials. See, Alfie, what I really like to hear about you is sort of like you're able to take in 
what uh, what everyone else is what what's going on in the rest of the sport you know how well everyone else is racing you know what people are saying and sort of like what is going through your head because to kind of get into the race this was a race everyone's been talking about and waiting for for you know years and at the halfway point and even like through mile 18 everyone we thought was going to be in contention for this race is still there and what is going through your head knowing the credentials that some of these other women have and that you see that it this is still anyone's race I think going into the race, the one thing that set me really well in terms of like mentally is it is a marathon, Chris. In order to win a marathon, you first have to win the marathon distance. Before you even worry about your competition, you have to worry about the distance. And it was even like worse in Atlanta because the course was that much harder. And so like I think a lot of people predicted that this marathon felt like running a 28 to 30 mile run versus running 26 and so going into the race i was like there's a lot of variables a lot of things have to go well in order for somebody to succeed so number one you have to think about the distance like i think i didn't start worrying about my competition until i got to mile 20 and in mile 20 i assessed myself how i feel because i knew then that i had gone through 20 miles and they said that through uh halfway of a marathon is 20 miles so i needed to get to 20 miles feeling good before I could even worry about making the team. And so I acknowledged that this was going to be an incredibly hard run and that it's a marathon, something could go wrong. It doesn't matter how good our people are on paper. Even the person who has the best day the night before the race can get like a food poisoning. Something could go wrong. There's so many things that could go wrong and you end up not doing well. And so I think the thing that gives me a lot of confidence is the fact that it's a marathon. Really, like I didn't, and of course the fact that my training had gone well, but none of that mattered until I got to mile 20, until I got to mile 24, when I knew that I only had two miles to go and I was feeling good. So yeah, just knowing that it was a marathon and it doesn't really matter. The credentials that you have on paper, you have to overcome that distance to even like be a factor. You make your move at 20, 21-ish. Why was that the right time and... and you know, making that decision, you, you have to be a hundred percent in on like, okay, this is it. Well, it didn't, I didn't know that was the right thing to do. I was, uh, <laughs> in my visualization, I, I visualized that the, the, the course itself will dwindle people down. And that did not happen until we made that move. Like even in my last conversation with Ben, we thought that, you know, because of how hard this course was, by the time we come around for the third loop, that a lot of the, you know, the top contenders will have felt the effects of the, of the, of the, uh, of the race, right. And of how hard the course was. So we were thinking, well, in my mind, I thought maybe by the time we come around for the third loop, there will probably be seven of us. And then, Halfway through that third loop, there'll probably be five, and then really there'll be two people that, you know, will will have a really good chance uh, of being top three. But that's not what happened. You know, all of us were together until about mile 20. And when we made that move, it wasn't necessarily me who made that move. It was just that we had been climbing gradually, and we'd been increasing the pace. And uh, it just happened that Molly Seidel was leading. And I think we had just increased the pace significantly and we were going uphill. And when I glanced back and, and saw that we were strong, I got a glimpse of hope. And I realized in that moment that this was the moment to make the move. And that was the time that I just went on her shoulder and I said, let's go, Molly. Because once we did that, once I came on her shoulder, we increased the pace significantly. And because we had already been climbing, and for me, who was behind and wasn't really doing a lot of the work at that point, it wasn't hard, you know, like I wasn't struggling yet. So we just stepped on the girls, like, like abruptly, and like, really, we just put a, a, a huge distance right away. But I didn't know until that point that that was the time to make the move. I was waiting. I was just thinking that it would be a gradual move and, you know, like people will fall off the path. And that's what I was waiting for until that happened. It was funny to hear your mindset about just kind of the approach you took when you saw everyone was still in it. And you said, you know, well, you just have to remember this is a marathon and, and you kind of have been there before. And now it's funny to think that when you make your move, you bring the person who hasn't run a marathon before with you. And so it's kind of like, 
it, it, Jake Riley told this little story about how Abdi at one point in the race turns to him and says, let's go, let's beat this guy, talking about Leonard Career, and he thought it was a little bit of a trick to maybe get him <laughs> to get his, you know, take the wheels out of him. And for you, it, Molly put a lot of trust in you during that race. Yeah, I, I think that comes from the fact that, you know, I believe that when I talk, and I hope that this is how it comes out, I don't, I, I'm not going to try to tell people the things that they want to hear. I hope that when I tell somebody something, it's because it's coming from my heart. And so if you hear me say something, unless if I'm joking, which I am most of the time, but if I tell you something and I am serious, then you know that it's very genuine. And so when we made that move and I told Molly, say, let's go. It wasn't me trying to prank her. It was me being genuine and saying, let's go, Molly. Like, I didn't even, honestly, at that point, I didn't even think that she's never run a marathon. It, was not, it, was, it wasn't until later when I was like, oh, wow, this is Molly. She hasn't run a marathon before. And when I, I, I think maybe it was about a mile in, once we had already separated, maybe we had like 10, uh, 10 20 seconds ahead. And then I was like, okay, my goal now would be to make sure Molly understands that I am here for her, you know, like I am here to support her, that I'm not going to try to break her, not anytime soon anyways, you know, um, and so I wanted, like I encouraged her and because I know that in my first marathon, I felt good. I had a pace for 11 miles and then I went the rest of the run by myself and when I got to mile 23, oh boy, it got really hard. It was painful and I lost a lot of, you know, time and ground on those last uh, two and a half miles and those were probably, that was the longest two and a half miles of my entire life. And then even in New York in 2017, I got to 40K and I was still feeling okay but from 40K to the finish was incredibly hard. So, you know, like, Knowing that in mind and knowing what a marathon can feel like, I just wanted to support her. And she put her trust in me, I think, partly because of the conversations that we've had, we had had in the past. And she knew that if I was saying this, then I wasn't just trying to prank her. At least that's what I hope she took away from. And I think that's what it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. She seems, just from her Instagram posts and everything, like super appreciative of not only like the friendship you guys had before the race, but, you know, this moment coming together in like the perfect way. This seems like a like a easy question, but the answer might not be that easy. But when you cross the finish line, I mean, what were their feelings? <laughs> I think I was um, not necessarily lost, but um, you you are in a state of existence. You're just existing. You don't. Uh, you you're not living a reality. You're just going with the flow of what's happening again, like around you. I don't think. Um, when I crossed the finish line that I was uh, conscious about everything that was happening around me, it was just that this huge goal that you've been talking about and walking towards just become a reality. And I think in that moment, reality was too much to handle. So therefore my brain just uh, resorted to just existing really and, and, and just living and, and, and like going with the flow. And I probably am still in that state of mind uh, for the most part. Even now, I still don't think that I have gone back to reality. I don't know how soon or how much longer it's going to take me to come back to reality. Because this it almost sucks to be in this state where, like, I don't think it, it makes me feel like I'm not appreciating this enough, you know, because I'm not, I, I haven't, like, realize that it's a reality yet I'm already missing that moment of crossing the finish line or like when I see the pictures that we took I'm already missing that moment because I almost feel like because I was just existing I didn't get a chance to live it well enough and maybe I'm not I wasn't well prepared for it maybe it's because there were so many doubts you know from everybody else going and even though I believed in myself it just never like uh, it didn't set in right away so I don't know. We'll see how long this takes for me to uh, acknowledge it. Maybe I will never like get completely into it until I don't know. You're yeah. st you're still on cloud nine. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After after the race, um, kind of, I, I was saw on Instagram. I mean, you you blew up with followers, but there's a there was a little video of you, uh, Steph Bruce, and Kellen Taylor just taking a round of shots after uh, to celebrate. <laughs> Uh, Wait, did that really match its way to Instagram? Yeah, I think someone uh, someone put it on their story. <laughs> oh, shoot. Jeez, my dad. I don't know what my dad is thinking now of me. <laughs> so what was that night of celebrating like? And like, when was the last time you were out that late or up uh, up that late? 
um, that night we ended up going to bed um, at 3 or 2 a.m., but I actually didn't fall asleep. That was the first night in a very long time that I did not sleep completely. The next day I was like a zombie, but I was still having fun. Um, after uh, after awards and media, and um, we had a medal ceremony. I hadn't even gone to my room. I don't think I got into my room until like 5 p.m., uh, and then uh, after the, at the medal ceremony, we were given, um, uh, instead of, a, we were given, I think, each a, a bottle of, a, I want to say whiskey. And uh, of course, naturally, because my team and group was there, we took shots. <laughs> and I got, I got a little tipsy after that. And then we went back to our room, we took a shower, and then we had a hockey event, um, you know, like a celebration that night. So we went to that, and then I took a couple more shots, uh, and that was great, that was fun, and we took pictures. It was fun. And then actually, when we got back to Flagstaff, uh, we were able uh, to uh, meet the community and uh, mostly the people that work close to us. And we went out to, uh, to have drinks, and after that, when everybody else went home, uh, Steph, uh, Scott, Scott, and a couple other guys, and I went to a karaoke bar. What did and you sing? Not, uh, I sang uh, "Call Me Maybe." I don't know who uh, who the artist is, and uh, it was me and Scott and Stephanie, and it is a lot of fun. There's a video. I'm not gonna share it, but I don't know somehow. This Linden got a hold of that, and she sent me a message. She said. I am, you know, like having fun with this. And I'm like, wait, how did you get a hold of that? Uh, but we had so much fun. Like, I mean, we didn't drink a ton or anything. We were just having fun, you know, at the karaoke. And I thought that was fun. I was sending them, I said, I'm living my best life. And I was actually living my best life, just hanging out with my friends. The only downside to that was we didn't have Kellen there with us and we didn't have Sid with us because they had other plans. But we still had fun. And I hope we can do more of that in the future. I've always wanted to go to a karaoke bar. And I got a free shot because I was wearing my medal, but I didn't finish that because I was like, uh uh-uh, uh, I don't think I like the feeling of this, and I don't want to wake up the next morning uh, with hangovers. <laughs> Amazing. I'm sure so many of yeah. you are going to enjoy hearing that story. Um, yeah. All right, Alphine, I'm going to hit you with the final questions I ask every guest. So the first one is uh, What's the meanest thing that you've read about yourself on let'srun.com? I have not gone to Teletron.com lately, so I don't think I actually have that. But I did see on Twitter that uh, there was a pretty nasty, um, I don't know, like a comments or thread about uh, like uh, Kenyan-Americans uh, representing or making the U.S. team or like uh, um, not just Kenyan-Americans, but like immigrant-Americans are representing the team and people saying, but they are not true Americans, they are not American-born. So I guess that would be the only one. So wait, kind of just like on that note, I mean, how much does that bother you and, and how much have you tried to, to ignore that? Usually things like that don't bother me because the people that know me know who I am and know how appreciative I am. But in the back of my mind, I will just put this out. Um, when I went to watch the, uh, the coverage, I was not mentioned at all. In the first 20 miles, except when uh, Dina was talking about our NEC elite and she was talking about Kellen and she said, you know, like uh, Kellen uh, had teammates, uh, which is me and Stephanie. But also, I mean, Stephanie wasn't mentioned, I guess, too. So I was not bothered because, again, I didn't have the credentials that we had, that, you know, everybody else did. And then once we got to 20 miles and it was just Molly Seidel and I, I still felt like they didn't give us enough credit they didn't give me enough credit and I guess it makes sense because Molly was debuting but I also felt like I, I just I, I don't know like it bothered me and, and it got me thinking like does this have anything to do with my race or where I grew up I, w- I will never know the answer to that but and so in that moment when I was watching the race before I actually continued I caused the race and I cried because I feel like somebody who is very relatable to people. The people that know me know who I am and know my true self and, and how appreciative I am. And when I was watching that up to that point, I just, I, I couldn't feel, uh, I couldn't help being disappointed. And I paused and I called my manager and I called uh, my coach. And I even told my manager, I said, I would like to talk to me because uh, my manager is, um, Maeve's brother, Mahawi, yeah, and, and I was like, I want to talk to Maeve because I'm sure Maeve has been through this before, you know, where, like, 
because he was an immigrant and he met the Olympics, uh, you know, the first time I wanted to know how he felt and stuff. And I, I didn't want to post about this or even talk about it. But I feel like, you know what, if he was bothering me, I should just say it. But then after that, after I talked to my manager and I, talk, I spoke to my coach, Ben, it was fine. Like I got through it and then I worked the rest of the coverage. And, you know, there was there was a significant mention. But, yeah, I, I was definitely a little disappointed and it did bother me. But I just wasn't sure. If it was because I was running with Molly, who was debuting, or if it was the fact that I grew up in Kenya, or if it was my race, I don't know. And I'm always somebody who doesn't like, it It doesn't usually bother me, but it did bother me for a little bit that day. Um, you mentioned Meb, and I, I remember kind of on Rory's podcast, you said something about you wanted to be like the female Meb, but in a way, like also, you can also be the first Alphine. I mean, what, what what do you want to take away from uh, Meb's role model example into your own life, and then also just personalizing it? I think I just want to be uh, a female. The reason I said, uh, and this was a few years, by the way, uh, this was probably three, four years ago when I said that I wanted to be a female Meb because I saw how he was inspiring people, what Meb was doing. So many people got inspired by it. And the fact that he was an immigrant like myself and he got these opportunities and he was very appreciative, I, I related to that a lot. And I wa- and, and then, like, in 2016, I, um, I, I, I saw him in Eugene. Uh, uh, that was when I met Howie, too, even though Howie had been representing him. And then um, we went over to Meb's house, and he was just like anyone else, you know. Like, he went for a run, and then they had an event that evening. He had gone because he had met the, uh, the, the, the American team. He went for a run, and then he came back while his wife was doing other things. He was ironing his clothes. He was just like a normal human being. But for me, like, I, I mean, seeing him run and make the Olympic team, I thought he was a he was a superhuman. But being able to see him in his uh, at home and seeing what he was doing, I thought, wow, this is how I want to be. I want to be that person who, even when they shine on the biggest stage at home, they're still, you know, like, uh, they're still the same, you know, they still tend to their families, they still do things just like anyone else, they still talk to people, it doesn't matter, you know, like what the credentials of those people are, they still relate to them in a certain level, and I declared that I wanted a female, to be a female version of him, and really after that, I mean, I've seen, he's inspired a lot of people, he's done really good things, he's done, the MIPS Foundation is helping a lot of underprivileged kids here and back in Eritrea, so I, I would like to do that too, you know, like, just use, I feel like maybe it's one example of athletes, an athlete who use their platform to inspire a lot of people and to uplift other athletes too. Back to the final questions that I ask every guest, next one is, uh, what's the funniest or weirdest drug testing story you have? Drug testing story? Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, I, uh, like, for me? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I don't think I have a weird one for myself, but my friend Caroline wrote it, uh, when I and I, when I used to live in Santa Fe, uh, she, uh, had a, she, I think this was after she won Boston Marathon in 2015, uh, of course the people who are doing drug testing come in the afternoon, like late afternoon, and then she had, she, she couldn't pee, and so we waited, and then when she was ready to go pee, um, she had enough, well actually she didn't have enough the first time, so she goes pee, and then she doesn't have enough, so then these people have to wait, and the second time when she went to pee, the uh, the cup was uh, was broken, so oh, she no. lost all that pee, so she, they had to wait, and then eventually I was like, okay, I'm going to have to cook for all these people, so I cooked for these people, and we had dinner, I think she, they waited for like six hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. hilarious. Um, next one is, if you could go on a run anywhere in the world with anyone from history, they don't have to be a runner, uh, who, would the, you, who would you go on a run with and where would it take place? I think I would love to run with Haile um, Kaposilasi. Okay. And I would actually love to run in Ethiopia because I have seen incredible pictures and videos from Ethiopia. They're amazing roads, uh, country roads, and, 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 you know, the training in the forest, uh, in single track. And the reason I choose uh, Haile is I read a book about Haile, how, you know, like, um, he was very dedicated to learning the English language so he can communicate with people. Because I think one of the quotes that he had, and I'm not 100% sure, if, uh, I'm going to try to paraphrase it, but it was like, when people speak to you and you don't understand the language, they will automatically assume that you are dumb. 
But if you could communicate with them, then you know you you can like you could uh your message will be understood. And uh uh you know, he worked really hard to teach himself, you know, the English language and he was able to communicate and through that he inspired a lot of people. And hey, he was able to break a lot of uh, world records too. So I would love to run with him and I I've never met him in person. He doesn't even know who I am, but I would definitely love to meet with him and chat with him. I think he knows who you are probably by this point. And also, it, that, it sounds like this run could be possible at some point in the future. Um, so that's that's I great to so. hear. Well, kind of unrelated, but who was the most famous person or coolest person that uh, uh, you that followed you on Instagram after the win? <laughs> this is a really sad one. But I actually don't know because I haven't had a chance to go through everything. Yeah, so, you have so many. Pick up so many. <laughs> I know. Yeah, when you go from uh, six thousand to eighteen thousand, it's really hard to know who's who. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hope to. I hope to give to have that answer soon, though. Yeah, definitely. All right, final one has nothing to do with running, but it'll test your basketball skills. You get twenty-five shots. Oh my God! What? From half court, if you make one, you win twenty-five million dollars. If you don't make any of the 25 shots, you'll go to jail for 25 years. Would you attempt the shots? Absolutely. Yeah? Wow. <laughs> yes. I may not be good at this, but I think I could. 25 shots? Yeah. I will, yeah, I will throw the half, and if I, if I can't do it, I'm going to find myself a coach. <laughs> <laughs> and then make sure that I get, because I, 25, yes, I will do it. Wow. I, like, I, I love a challenge. There you go. That's the risk taker that we saw at mile 21. <laughs> yep. Alphine, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This is a lot of fun. Thank you, Chris, and uh, yeah. That's all for this episode of the show. Many thanks to Alphine for the chat. If you listened to this and enjoyed it, give us a shout-out on your Instagram stories. We'll repost it to all our followers, and that helps new people discover the show. Also, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's also greatly appreciated. Many thanks to Stride for sponsoring the show. They're helping ensure that you nail the perfect pacing strategy so you can keep a consistent effort in challenging conditions all in real time. You get all that data on your watch. I've been digging it. So check them out today. Stride.com slash Sidious. That's S-T-R-Y-D dot com slash Sidious. I've been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and most importantly, healthy running. And don't forget, legs are feeling good. Hang in there, guys.